Volume 2, Chapter 24 of Evelyn, or A Heart Unmasked, a novel by Anna Koromowit. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Kelly Taylor. Chapter 24 There is a love which forms in early days, lives on through silent years. From Catherine Elton to Elizabeth Montague, New York, April 20th, 18 blank. To hear from me but once in a whole year, and that once through the expressive medium of two highly glazed bits of pasteboard with a name embedded in flourishes on each, and a shabby little package tied with tell-tale white ribbon, Truly, my gentle friend, your complaints are not causeless. I have been so long wedded to my pen that the union could only be interrupted and the goose quill discarded and divorced to give place to another lord. The thousand little gossiping narrations and sage reflections and grave confessions which my communicative disposition induce me to impart to you are now breathed in another, not less attentive ear. She who gives not her perfect confidence with her hand is not spiritually wedded. Believe me that I will willingly gratify your curiosity in affording you some further information respecting the friends whose histories you have followed through two eventful years. It is like La Fontaine's transformed tabby, returning to her former cat-like vagarities. Of Ellen first, Ellen who ranks first in our hearts, and whose life of love ensures her an exalted rank in eternity. She is still dwelling in her city cottage, her school rapidly increases, and her thoughts are engrossed by every active employment has use and God for its end. And this is the Ellen who three years ago found no beauty in this affluent world, no sweetness in life, no hope in the future, no consolation in the past. It is the pure motive of her acts which lends them their loveliness, did she look for gratitude or praise as the meed of kindness performed, then would she be but a capital calculator at the best. Her charity is for charity's sake, her goodness is for the sake of good, and therefore do her deeds send up a grateful incense to heaven. Yet is she faultless, this same exemplary fair one? By no means. She has never forgotten her mother's cruelty to Evelyn. A marked coldness exists between Mrs. Willard and her sole remaining daughter, and Ellen is always constrained and uneasy in her mother's presence. Were Ellen's nature wholly pure, she could pity and pardon the unjust and tolerate even the heartless. The bright October morning, when I took leave of the little cottage in 27th Street to enter my own more ostentatious dwelling, would have been a sad one for Ellen, had she not forgotten all selfish regret in sympathizing with my joy. 
and happily our residences are situated so near each other that my windows overlook her garden, and we have established a set of telegraphic signs that form a pleasant chain of communication. I not unfrequently pay visit to Ellen's schoolroom, and my quondam little favourite, Annie, ever loudly testifies her delight on beholding her early instructress. It is a true pleasure to steal upon Ellen unawares. The atmosphere about her breathes of such perfect peace and order. She is so thoroughly contented with her lot. Her school is so judiciously regulated, her house so neat, her garden, like her soul, so full of daily springing beauty. That tiny, tenderly tended garden reminds me of the old flower woman. I must say a word of her, en passant. Of a fine afternoon, in spring or summer, you could not stroll down Broadway without noticing her and her floral offerings. But the old woman no longer crouches beneath a tattered umbrella. The proceeds of Ellen's bouquets have procured her a comfortable-looking sort of wooden cupboard, and there the smiling old dame sits ensconced amongst her flowers. It does the heart good to look upon her, for one might well fancy that she was rejuvenated by the fresh blossoms sending forth their perfume around her withered form. Her nosegays, too, are worth more than a passing glance, for they are daily supplied from Ellen's garden, and are not unfrequently from the greenhouses of some of her pupils, for many of those, following in the footsteps of their beloved instructress, find their chief delight in delighting others. Of Mrs. Willard, what shall I say? Except that she is Mrs. Willard still, she has lately been seized by an all-engrossing horror of growing old, and in truth her uneasy fretfulness and constant spleen have greatly contributed to wither and wrinkle her hitherto smooth skin. Every softening soap, cosmetic wash, and eau de beauté advertised in the papers is sure to find its mysterious way to her toilette table. She passes her days in dyeing her hair, darkening her brows and lashes, setting forth her remaining charms, and in bewailing and concealing the departed ones. And all in pain and toil is endured for the sake of repairing the worn-out clay-sprung garment, which can last her but a few years at the best, while the beauties of the spirit, which must serve her to eternity, are despised and neglected. I would as soon think of patching up a threadbare dress, while the new one of untarnished splendor awaited my finishing touches. Formerly, she attired herself in excellent taste, but as she grows older, she dresses younger, affecting the coquettish airs and the uninformed manners of youth, and she really persuades herself that this shallow cheat is undiscovered by the politely blinded world. Every day, as soon as her toilette is completed, she sallies forth and takes her station in my parlour for the purpose of entertaining my guests, or rather of astonishing them by her wonderful volubility and self-derived importance. 
I look upon her as one of those necessary encumbrances to which good nature must uncomplainingly give house room, the foil of earnestness and sincerity, a shadow in the bright picture of life. Death, to her, is a sound so terrible that she almost faints at the mere mention of the word, and yet she, too, must die. Poor Richard, Dick, as he still calls himself, he is limping on crutches through the world, ludicrously comparing himself to the Diable Boiteau, and ever talking of independent fellows, of his country, his family, and his own astonishing intellectual powers. But Richard is not himself, and I fear me never will be again. He cannot speak of his favorite, Eddie, without brushing his rough coat-sleeves across his eyes, and the action is always followed by an oath, and an observation that he will pepper that rascally colonel yet if he catches him in these diggings again. Ever since that unfortunate duel, Richard has resided with his parents and sister. Mr. Elton has procured him a situation as clerk, in the same mercantile establishment of which Mr. Willard is a bookkeeper. But Dick still persists in calling himself a lawyer, adding that he is reposing on his laurels, and takes up the present situation to look after the establishment for the sake of obliging a friend. But he talks not as boisterously as was his wont, and I should not wonder to see him grow melancholy and gentlemanly as Jacques himself. Mr. Willard deserves the truly American title of Man Well to Do in the World, to Ellen, who first pointed out the veins of gold that ran unnoticed beneath his feet, the verdant spots in what was to him a desert, and who first taught him the value and beauty of existence, his devotion is unbounded. His prosperity yearly increases, and yet hardly keeps pace with his growing gratitude and content. Good man! He often comes in our way through his over-anxiety to be busy and obliging, but even haste could not thrust him aside without a smile and a word of thanks. And Amy the gentle-spirited, uncomplaining, but soul-stricken Amy, where is she? Too soon vanished the delusive star upon which she had fixed her worshipping gaze. It fell. But her eyes were not less meekly nor less steadily turned to that firmament beyond which a holier star was shining. I mourn for the tender mother and the fond old father, of whose lengthening days she is the sun. For, as the autumn leaves blush, when their glory must depart, so nature, in her feeble strife with death, has crimsoned Amy's cheek with the hectic hue that proclaims defeat. And, in the fair girl's blue orbs, there is a lustrous light that only illumines the eye when it takes its last farewell of earth. And Blanche, the two victims of heaven pardon him, they are withering side by side, 
Blanche has never recovered her reason nor of the hand by which her vengeance was accomplished. I loved her tenderly, and would have gladly retained her with me, but to my entreaties Amy answered, When I am gone, take my place, and be to her all that you have been. While I remain, I shall find a sad pleasure in watching over one so much more miserable than myself. You have many duties. Mine are but too few. Of Colonel Damoreau, I only know that he disappeared from the city soon after his accident. The papers for some time daily teemed with different accounts of the terrible injury he had received, but all mention and even remembrance of him has long since died away. Where he is hidden his disfigured countenance seems no longer a matter of interest. Peace be with him the peace of which he has robbed so many without enriching himself. Ah, Netta, rosy, roguish, industrious little Netta, Ellen's shadow and her right arm. Netta springs up and thrives like a weed, but her blossoms are those of the unconscious wildflower, and it would not be difficult to recognize what hand had nourished the soil about this vigorous little daisy and Netta's parents. Dan has not entirely recovered his sight, but Mr. Elton has found him plenty of work, which is almost as good, and he has never broken the temperance pledge. Nancy, well, well, if she does not always follow the good path, it is not because the way is not often enough pointed out to her. There is a certain gentle hand that stretches itself forth to lead her into the road as often as she swerves aside, and it is to be hoped that one of these days she will learn to walk straight ahead. And Billy, in this land of newspapers and cheap publications, newsboys form an important part of the population. Some who now carry literary bundles beneath their arms will ride in their carriages before they die, and I see no reason why Billy himself may not be nominated as a member of Congress one of these days. Rise, rise. It matters not from what obscure pit a man may spring. If he has the talent, the energy, the will, he may still rise. The highest summit which America boasts is not beyond the reach of its humblest-born citizen. At present, Billy looks forward to no greater glory than that of becoming a smasher and the rival of Mark. Billy already expresses it as his opinion that he knows when a book's worth the crying and whether it's going to take off like hot cakes or cold, as well as the biggest-fisted smasher of them all. I believe him. Success to Billy the Newsboy. The sturdy little fellow now prides himself upon his honesty, thanks to Ellen, as much as on his boxing, and he is an honor to his profession. Hurrah, hurrah for Billy, cry his ragged young brethren, after he has been haranguing them during idle times at some street corner. And hurrah for Billy, say I. May the Newsboys ever find him easy to meet but hard to beat. And these are all in whose histories your interest has been awakened. Uh, nay, there is one more. Laura Hilson. 
I cannot so well give you a portrait of her print life as by repeating a conversation which took place between Ellen and myself this afternoon. She had come to pass a sociable hour with me, and we were sitting by the window idling over our needles and looking out into the broad avenue. As we chatted away, making our gossiping observations on the world at large, a splendid open barouche, with a liveried footman and coachman, and drawn by two white horses, whirled by us. The barouche contained a lady, magnificently attired, and though it fled with rapidity, we both recognized beneath the rich white Michelin veil the blooming features of Laura Hilson. What a superb equipage! Laura Hilson! Can it be possible? How came she there? asked Ellen, all in one breath. I forgot to tell you, was my answer, that I heard the other day Miss Hilson was married. Married to whom? To a southern planter of immense wealth, and a quite accomplished young man. I believe that his name is Ruthven, and he is said to have been a friend of Colonel Damoreau. Mr. Ruthven was travelling for pleasure, and in passing through New York, found the principal hotels full, and took room at Fleecer's. He saw Laura, and they are married. That is all I know on the subject. Ellen sat dejectedly musing for some time, and then, looking at me with a sorrowful expression, said, Does it seem, just in divine providence, who governs all things, that while the good are often bowed down by suffering and die, sometimes in misery, such misery as we have witnessed, that a being wicked as Laura Hilson should arrive at the summit of her wishes, should be loaded with riches, and be raised to a position which commands respect, if not adulation. Can you not then conceive, dear Ellen, I replied, that those very riches, that adulation, may be the bitterest curses instead of blessings? Wealth and high station are blessings to those who prize them for the sake of ministering to others. They are blessings to those who look to some good use as the desirable end of riches. But what is opulence to such as regards self alone? Is it not a curse, since it makes them place their affections entirely upon worldly things from which they must be parted? If it seduces their minds and alienates their hearts from the contemplation of elevated subjects, is it not a curse? If it excites in them an uncontrollable desire for personal gratification, is it not a curse? Do not they themselves feel it a curse when, loving it so devotedly, they remember that they cannot carry it away with them, and that the unconquerable tyrant death may separate them at any hour from their treasures? I admit the force of your argument, said Ellen, and yet I would willingly believe that the wicked were punished on earth and the good rewarded. And by balancing our accounts here, you would rob hereafter of half its sustaining consolations. If we found our heaven in this world, we should hardly be willing to seek it in another. And, ah, 
"'I see now the short-sightedness of my own wishes,' cried Ellen, interrupting me. "'I would not, for the universe, be deprived of the perfect willingness to die which I now feel. Hereafter, yes, we must live for the hereafter. It is the reference which our seeming blessings bear to our future state, which should render them prized or valueless, true, very true.' So ended our grave conversation, and with it ends this long letter, for which I am almost inclined to make the apologies of a schoolgirl, but forbear, when I remember your habitual leniency and the constitutional blindness to all that is defective. End of chapter 24 End of Evelyn, or A Heart Unmasked, a novel by Anna Cora Mawet.